Welcome to the Magnificent Life Podcast with your host, Sister Dr. Mongaza Michael Bondale. Join us now as we showcase lessons from Black achievement as example and instruction for how you can live greatly. So welcome, welcome to the Magnificent Life Podcast with Sister Dr. Mongaza Michael Bondale. I'm just so excited, just absolutely ecstatic that you have taken the time to join us today on this podcast platform. You know that we use lessons from Black achievement as instruction for self-development. Here is where we invite you to learn skills and habits for producing a magnificent, indeed a Magnificent life, the one that you envision. And so essentially, we're here to remind you of the pure, unadulterated joy found in being exactly who you are. On today's show, we have the distinct pleasure of exploring the common ties that bind people of African descent throughout the world, throughout the African diaspora. And because this podcast platform focuses on the achievements of people of African descent, wherever we find ourselves, that is in Africa, in the U.S., in the Caribbean, Europe, and beyond, you know, it's important that we know the history, the triumphs, and challenges that we share. Like members of a family, we are stronger. We are more able to activate our personal and collective power when we interact with our common goals in mind. And so to help us understand that commonality and the advantages of considering how people of African descent are one, we have with us a distinguished scholar today. This African diaspora specialist, well, she, she's the author of two books on Afro-Brazilian history. She's the winner of the Wesley Logan Prize for African Diasporan History, and also the Letitia Woods Brown Publication Prize, conferred by the Association of Black Women Historians. She's authored a host of journal articles and contributed chapters to 13 books, She's presented research papers at more than 60 professional conferences, including delivering keynote addresses in Spanish and Portuguese. She's the recipient of 16 honors and fellowships, including serving as a 2014 Fulbright Scholar. You know, I'm almost running out of breath here because just the, the achievements are extensive. Well, just a couple more things. She served on more than 40 different advisory boards and panels. And just we're just so excited to have this brain trust with us today. She is a former president of the Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora and a former chair of the Africana Studies Department at Rutgers. Let me take a breath and introduce to you Sister Dr. Kim Butler. How are you today? <laughs> well, I am well. I'm exhausted. <laughs> listening to all of that. But, um, but you know, I just want to thank you, my sister, because, you know, we think about the work that we do. And it's such a joy to do work that you find meaningful and that, that is important in what you have, the space that you have created here with Blacknificent Life is so, so important um, that it is really um, an honor and a pleasure to, you know, just be here with you in this space. So thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Absolutely. It really is a, a pleasure. So let's just jump right in here now. We wanted to provide a, a, an opportunity to understand better this notion of commonality of Black folks throughout the African diaspora. We've got all kinds of folks from all kinds of locations listening in. Uh, and so we want to just understand better how it is that we are one. I'd like you to just tell us just what are the commonalities that you see? This has been your work. This has been your focus of research for, for decades. What are those commonalities that bind people of African descent throughout the diaspora? Yeah. Well, you know what? Um, I'm going, the, the, the way I would like to answer this is that I think a lot of us stumble on these commonalities in a very intuitive way. You know, we might be at a party and people might be playing music in a different language, but you know how to dance to it. Or foods that you seem to check out from other cultures in the African world. It's not so, so different. And you start to find out, in fact, maybe sometimes words are the same or similar. And some of the things that we do seem very 
similar in the sense that we seem to recognize that our ancestors, we remember them when we are having a gathering, you know, just pouring a little little something on the floor. It's something that African people do in so many places. Where it comes from, even though we come from many, many different countries on the African continent originally, there are broad, broad fundamentals of culture that many of these cultures share. And so that's one part of it. In terms of historically, what we now know as the African community really was something that began to come about as a uh, political reality in conjunction with the creation of global capitalism, colonialism, opening up the Americas and the, the quote unquote new world. In doing that, as you know, the, the European countries began to get involved in world trade, and this, you know, that's a whole nother conversation as to how this whole system evolved. But the system that evolved was predicated on taking the land and people of Africa as a prime resource, as a building block of modern capitalism. And it put us in a relationship of having to combat that and having to really resist the ways in which they wanted to consume us. And so we have our cultural things that we share from having a common ancestral home, but we also have our place in the world that we also share. So being together in a community does not mean that we're all identical to one another. So even when we're talking about all these things that bind us, we are not denying or negating the fact that so there are so many different cultural realities within that. There's so many ideologies. I mean, we're talking a world of people. So we are together, but we are not all identical. And that's a nuance that, you know, I don't want us to think that we're just assuming all Black people are the same, but there are certain things that bind us. And, and that reality comes home to us when we know that it doesn't matter what country you're from. If you are a Black human being walking down certain streets or walking in certain, you know, situations or confronting police, they don't care what language you speak. Right. Right, right. Amadou Jalo. Mm -hmm. So listen, talk a bit, take us back a little bit. I, I got so many questions popping up here. The diaspora that we're talking about, what are we talking about? You, you alluded to the time in which we were taken out of Africa and dispersed mostly, or I'm going to say largely, through what, what can be known as middle passages. And we ended up in varied places. So this diaspora, who does it include? Just give us a, a, a quick like 101, who are we talking about here? Well, the word diaspora, it really means a scattering, you know, from an original homeland. So it, it you know, embedded in that word diaspora, that there's like that SPR, that's the same word you see in spreading mm -hmm. or disperse. It's just mm -hmm. that scattering, right? So when you think about the people who have scattered from a homeland mm -hmm. in Africa, to other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. That's the African diaspora. And while mm -hmm. we had upwards of 11 million people come across the Atlantic Ocean, we had about that many, if not more people, go out to the Indian Ocean. There was a slave trade across the Indian Ocean. So if you see dark-looking people in countries like Afghanistan and, uh, and Yemen and places like that, that's part of the reason why India has people of the African diaspora. And people of the African diaspora did not only leave in slavery. I mean, people continue to travel. So you have um, people mm -hmm. of African descent living today in uh, Europe. There's a huge Black population in Europe. Even in Asia, there's Black folk. And right. when we think about even, you know, going back to those historic ones, we do talk a lot about it the slave trade, because that really was what forced so many people to, to leave the African continent. 
But again, they were not all enslaved. So we have, you know, stories in India. Uh, one of the things that happened back in antiquity was that a lot of Africans traveled because they were warriors or translators or traders. So that's, you know, so we should not lock ourselves into thinking only of slavery, but that's what we're talking about. And so when we're talking about the African diaspora here in the Americas, we're talking about those approximately 11 million or so people mm -hmm. who came over to all of the North, Central, South America and the Caribbean during, you know, those centuries from, let's say, about the 1500s on to the late 1800s. Mm -hmm. so, so basically, we're talking about how it is that we find ourselves in just about everywhere in the world. I don't know any other people that can describe themselves in that way. So, so there could be some great advantages to this. What are the advantages? I mean, why recognize, let's say, you know, the family for whatever the reason has dispersed and everyone is doing what they're doing in their various locations. What are the advantages for actually beginning to understand that there's more to the family than where you are located? Because, I mean, let's keep it real. We got folks who are saying like, you know, Africans born in this country, African-Americans are saying, you know, them Jamaicans and, you know, them, them Nigerians, you know, that mm -mm, they're not my people. Like, you know, I don't like the way they be. And, and of course, we have uh, Africans in the diaspora that stereotype Africans, black folks born in this country. So what is the advantage of breaking through these perceptions of who we are to understand us as one family? Well, I mean, that there's so many advantages. I mean, let's just say a few things. Think about how we think of ourselves here. How many times have you had uh, people refer to us as the minority? Right. Mm -hmm. The minority means, excuse me, that means that you are powerless relative to the majority. That's a that's a big shift. I mean, when you stop thinking of yourself as just a small, isolated right. person, it's right. almost like, you know, when you're a kid, if you are in a fight and you just by yourself and you're surrounded by all these people, but then what happens when your big cousins and your brothers and those your your, your mm -hmm. aunties and uncles come? <laughs> <laughs> to help you and got mm. your back. <laughs> well, the street. The street. that shifts the balance mm -hmm. of power. They know you belong. To right? Mm -hmm. That shifts the balance of power. <laughs> so that's that's a big part exactly. of it. It is, it is the way we think of ourselves and understanding what resources we have. And that could be on personal small levels. It could be at big levels. I mean, when Haiti has a has a, a a situation like they have with the earthquake what would that be like if all the black countries could come and just surround them with support and honor this one country that really was the first one to fight mm -hmm. for black freedom in the americas and win that's right they, i mean this is they are a whole the honored place in the whole of the western hemisphere that's right exactly mm -hmm. and beat down the mighty france mm -hmm. at the height of its power mm -mm. led by a little bitty napoleon mm -hmm. exactly and the right the, the supposedly the greatest general in the world Exactly. We don't even know this. General, this is not common knowledge amongst people of African descent that Toussaint, Dessalines, Haiti is free because of what Africans who had been enslaved decided to do and accomplish successfully. We don't even know that. We don't even know. We don't know that. And we also don't know the other piece of that puzzle mm. is mm -hmm. that to, to punish them for having gotten their freedom, uh, France made Haiti pay them millions and millions of dollars in our money today. And they had to pay into the 20th century. That revolution took place, you know, it was completed in 1804. They had to pay into the 20th mm -hmm. century to, to pay France restitution just so that they could be dealt mm -hmm. with and honored and, and, and recognized as an independent country. Just to be recognized, not honored, recognized. And then now we look at Haiti and Haiti mm -hmm. is not economically as strong as other countries. And the first thing, what did they say about Haiti? Oh, it is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. But then you forget all that backstory. Mm -hmm. And that's what is so important about knowing your history. 
Because if all you have is that little bit they tell you, then you cannot form an informed understanding. You have a skewed vision of your people and yourself. Mm-hmm. And so to gain clarity, to, to know exactly who we are and where we are and how we are bound together, you talked about one advantage is that we can leverage our collective power on behalf of each other. We did that historically over and over again. Again, oftentimes we don't hear that, but we it's true. The resistance, the efforts that were made so that we could, many of us, be free, stay free, grow and flourish, even inside the country and economies that, that sought otherwise. We did that successfully. And so I want you to just share a bit about one of our diasporan triumphs. And because you are an expert in Afro-Brazilian history, I'd like to just shift a little bit here and take a look at that region. We often talk about enslavement of Africans in Brazil, huge number, and we often do not talk about how it is that these free communities emerged from attempts to enslave these Africans. Some were enslaved successfully and many were not. Let's talk about that because that's a common Mm -hmm. triumph. That's a common achievement of people in the diaspora, specifically Afro-Brazilians. Let's talk a bit about the Quilombos. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would just like to say why even think about Brazil? I mean, one of the things we have to remember is that Brazil is the largest population of Black people outside of Africa. That was one of the things that I was never taught in school. I did not know that until I was 20 years old Mm -hmm. and in college. Mm -hmm. And somebody mentioned that to me and it blew my mind. I was like, how could there be that many Black people on the planet that I just never have heard of? And way more than we have here. There are over 100... Mm -hmm. Yes, there are over 100 million people of African descent in Brazil of different skin tones, different ways of self-identifying. But in terms of ancestry, over 100 million. So that's one of the reasons that that attracted me to Brazil in the first place. Um, In terms of the the area of research? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like every... From when I heard about that, anytime I heard about anything with Brazil, my ears would perk up. Um, And as a historian, that is a a place that I research. And what you're talking about, these quilombos, were communities that were of people who had successfully escaped slavery and set up their own place to live. And they had all sizes. I mean, some of them were very uh, small and didn't last long. Uh, but others of them lasted a very long time. Some of them, they call them the, uh, I, I can't even think of the word in English, but the, the, I guess the, 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 the communities, the dissenting. Teacher. We call them remanescentes or the, 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 uh-huh. the, the, the legacy, I guess, of these Quilombo communities, but they're still there. But anyway, so you asked about uh, Palmares, and that was... Back in the 1600s, the Europeans were fighting over who was going to get control over what parts of the Americas. And so people were fighting with each other a lot. And in fact, in Brazil, which had been settled by the Portuguese, they had a situation where the Dutch came in and started fighting them to take over and actually took over a part of the um of their territory what time are we in now? we're what in the 1600s we... okay mm-hmm. and the same way that people talk about how you know enslavement worked because of divide and conquer well mm-hmm. the africans did the same thing you know they had a situation where when these wars would break out these people did not they were settlers they didn't come with armies or anything and so many times plantation owners would ask the, the, the people working on their plantations to help defend them and give them arms. And for a lot of people, they were like, the slave master is giving me a weapon? <laughs> so mm-hmm. many mm-hmm. of them took advantage of that opportunity to run away. 
Mm-hmm. And they had already been in every single slave society of the Americas. There were always uh, situations where people were escaping. So those little settlements were already out there. When you have this uh, war breakout, the uh, ability to run away, the, the uh, you know, opportunity increase. And so people began escaping into the hills. And there was a, a, a settlement that began to grow during this time. And it was called Palmares. And Palmares was not just, um, we tend to think about these things as like people hiding in the dark of night, you know, in little huts or, or just under trees. These were, this was a country. Mm-hmm. Palmares. So you've just, just so our listeners can follow, you've just shifted from talking about um, Quilombos generally, these free communities that we established when we decided under a, a myriad of conditions that we would not be enslaved. And and now we're going to talk about one of the most well-known and celebrated of these Quilombos. Yes, 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 yes. And, um, and as I said, you know, this is uh, in the 1600s. And while I am going to talk about Brazil here, I will say mm-hmm. that Brazil is not the only place where this happened. Throughout the Americas, right. the 1600s, yes. people, you know, control was not as tight as as they would like us to believe. So. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole maroon diaspora we can talk about in another conversation. <laughs> I know. This, we, we might just indeed have a whole other conversation of this. So let me tell the story of Palmares. So, okay. So here we have people escaping, you know, in little... Palmares is said to have been first founded sometime around 1605 and began to grow in small amounts, you know, as people could get away. I mean, this was a sugar growing plantation society in the northeastern part of Brazil in the area that was uh, uh, called Recife, the state of Pernambuco, right? And so, so when people would escape, they would go as far away as they could up into the hills, and that's where this settlement was. And when the war started to break out between the Portuguese and the Dutch, and people would get their hands on weapons, the, you know, the the uh, settlers were fighting amongst themselves. They went off in greater numbers, and so Palmares began to grow so much so that by the middle of the 1600s, there was a time when the Dutch did take control. And they knew about Palmares and they sent an expedition to go out and see what was going on there because they were now thinking this is their territory. And when they sent the expedition, they found that Palmares was actually a country that had two major cities Mm -hmm. and they had 11 smaller towns. Okay, now what do you mean country? Country, I, I heard you. And I want our audience to fully understand how that is so. Okay, so when we think about a country, well, what makes a country? A country has its own territory, which is what they had. A country has a capital. They did not have only one city. They had two major cities. And they had a government that had to administer how things were going to function. Now, we don't have a whole, whole lot of extensive documentation, but we do know certain things. We do know they had a system of government and we do know that they had at least these cities and towns in place. We definitely know that they had a military because self-defense was essential to their survival and preservation because they had to be independent uh, and not dependent on the colonial economy. That means they had to have industry. They had to be able to make weapons. They had to be able to produce food. So they had an economy. They had to have a, a way to distribute goods so that everybody was provided for. So there was a system of currency. There was a system of exchange. And one thing that they did that was very, very smart was that these were not um, they were not exclusive uh, to Africans. They, in fact, welcomed the indigenous people 
to come and settle in there with them. And many of them did because they had also been devastated by the colonialism, you know, and, and the, the taking of their lands. And so for many of them, they found stability there. And they also had alliances with the small European settlers that were in their immediate area mm -hmm. because they had an understanding, you know, once that they could have peaceful relationships, many of those farmers were able to trade for food with the people of Palmares because they could not pay for imported food that was coming in through the coast and, you know, the main trade, but people in Palmares were growing their own food. So... Yeah, alliance that's based on necessity. How many people we're talking about? We, 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 how many you are we know, talking about? The estimation is that there were about, and again, this was the mid-century. I'm basing this on a mid-century report from a Dutch expedition. Okay. And they estimated that there were about 5,000 people living in the cities and maybe about another 6,000 living in the in the towns. But for the demographics of that particular moment in time, that's quite a lot of people. 11,000 people. Yeah. Africans, free. Correct. Self-sufficient, autonomous. Correct. Creating their own systems of governance. Right. And, you know, I mean, we are not overblowing it. I mean, if you look here at the phenomenon of people keep talking about the Confederacy and still waving Confederate flags in this country. Um, and they're talking about it as a little moment in time when they had a nation within a nation that was the Confederacy. How long was that? That was four years. Mm -hmm. We're talking mm -hmm. something that mm -hmm. lasted mm -hmm. 90 years. Okay. Okay. And so this, what happened with Palmares, though, is that the Dutch realized that that was a much bigger adversary than they wanted to take on. They were supposed to have captured people, and that expedition turned out, they said that they were able to capture a few people, but they really did not want to take on Palmares at all. So when... when well. Yeah. <laughs> Strength in numbers. So what happened? Um, right. But they, they were defeated. The Dutch were defeated and kicked out of Brazil. And from that point on, we're talking now, we're getting into the later decades of the 1600s. The Portuguese really wanted to consolidate their power and they just felt they could not continue to exist with this other entity right on what they considered to be their territory. And so the, the Dutch, the Portuguese, amen. Okay, gotcha. We're following. So from 1672, they started, uh, well, actually, no, I mean, they, they just had ongoing war, ongoing attacks on Palmares that were never really successful. So after being tired of all of this, this warfare, warfare, warfare. In 1672, they tried to make an agreement with Palmares. And what they were offering was that if the residents of Palmares would agree to relocate and to return any new people escaping slavery who wanted to, if, they, if people came and ran away to Palmares, if they would agree to return them to slavery, mm -hmm. that the Portuguese said that they would allow them to live in a different part of, of the countryside. And, okay. mm -hmm. and they negotiated that treaty with the leader whose title was Ganga Zumba, which they believed means great lord. Mm -hmm. um, the, just it, linguistically, it seems to indicate that these were people whose primary origins were in West Central Africa, the countries that would be today, let's say, Angola, Congo. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that seems to be the primary ethnic background of the folks. He came with his retinue to the capital, negotiated this treaty, brought it back to Palmares, and that caused a huge debate because it was the principle. Would they stand for the return of fellow Africans to slavery while they live free? And in fact, mm -hmm. the king's nephew, whose name was Zumbi, decided that, that not only was that not acceptable, that he actually led a coup against his uncle 
to to put him out of power. Mm. Said if you want to accept that treaty, you can go ahead. But the nation of Palmares will never mm. accept that. And so he told them that we are going to war. If it is war we you asking for, then that's what you're gonna get. And for the next so nephew, nephew wasn't going along with what what Ong had in mind. No cooperation. No. no. And okay. neither okay. were the people behind him. You know, we right. talk about history in terms of of just the leaders, but think about I mean, he wasn't going into battle by himself. Right. And it was not only men. They had women generals. So people, they had women mm, yes. People were choosing what they were willing to fight and die for. Exactly. And the interesting thing about this is that Zunbi himself would not have been personally affected by this treaty because he was not a runaway. He was born free in Palmares. Mm -hmm. But he was willing to see, you know, the importance of that. So from 1672 on, it was just a constant state of warfare until in 1692, the government decided that they could not do this on their own. They petitioned the King of Portugal for some resources, and they hired professional you know, people who know how to do tra trackers, right? <laughs> people who know how to do tracking and people who were famous for that in the southern part of Brazil, which was still kind of a frontier. Mm -hmm. So almost like cowboys, those kind of people. They hired people to come from the extreme south of Brazil to march all the way up to where they were in the northeast. They brought cannons. They brought the heavy artillery. And then they made this big two-year drive to destroy Palmares. And over that time, they began to reduce. They would destroy a city and people would convene together in another place. And over time, they reduced mm -hmm. Palmares to one final stronghold. And they surrounded them in, in 1694 and put them put a siege they blockaded them and laid a siege around them and so they weakened all of their defenses and when the when they were mm -hmm. fully weakened that's when they broke through to go in and get them but the people of palmares were um i mean this is it has become part of the mythology that the people were so determined not to be brought into slavery that they just ran. I mean, um, part of the natural defense was being up on a high, hilly part of the you know landscape. And you know how when you run down a hill and you're trying to run fast, if you're not careful, you can fall. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people actually were injured and died trying to just escape out on that really sharp, you know, incline. Um, but uh, Zumbi was taken prisoner um, and they debated what to do with him because they didn't want to make a martyr of him. Mm -hmm. But on November 20th of 1695, they decided to execute him. And what they did was they cut off his head and put it on a stake so that everybody would know that he was mortal and that, that they had defeated him. And for years in Brazil, the name of Zumbi was like you were calling the boogeyman. I mean, people would tell children, oh, if you don't eat your vegetables, Zumbi is going to get you. Right. So there was a demonization that occurred Very around much so. this year. But then mm -hmm. when the black consciousness movement got started in Brazil, people took a look at this. They're saying, listen, hmm, why are we celebrating the princess who signed the declaration of that ended slavery. And we are not remembering Zumbi, whose whole life was given for the principle of black freedom. And so they decided to honor Zumbi by taking that date of his death as the day of national black consciousness, which it is to this day. And the name of Zumbi mm -hmm. is the quintessential symbol of black freedom What's that in day? Brazil. What's that day? November 20th. November 20th. And every year in Brazil, this is the National Day of Black Consciousness that was declared by Black people for themselves. And it is now celebrated uh, around the whole country. And the consciousness movement that you referred to is, is what came to existence in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay, so there Correct. Well, really in the 1970s, 
in Brazil, but it's very connected to the whole movement of black power and black consciousness that yeah. was going around the yeah. world. We inspired the world. And, and again, we don't, we being black folks in this country and the United States have, have little knowledge of, of the spark of the inspiration that we have been throughout the diaspora for other Africans to stand up and claim and celebrate their victories, their triumphs historically. So, so listen, this is just one story. This is just, oh my gosh, we're talking about the commonalities that bind people of African descent throughout the African diaspora. We're talking about those things that we achieve. So just listening to you tell the story, recount this history, it becomes clear that one, we thrived because we worked together. We actually were um, made made choices, conscious choices that we were not going to have the kinds of lives that were bound, restricted. We would have freedom by any means. And so we took the uh, opportunities that were given to us. Again, you talked about Palmares, but there are quilombos throughout certainly Brazil, and we call them differently, but maroon community. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, okay, so listen, even at the same time uh-huh. that all this is happening in Palmares, you can look around everywhere. So uh, we don't think about Suriname, mm-hmm. right? We don't talk about Suriname a lot. Mm-hmm. But those people, that was a Dutch colony, and they were given the Dutch problems. They were giving them some headaches. Because what they did was, I mean, this is... The Amazon region is very thick forest, rivers, things like that. And those folks went deep down into those rivers and set up communities that are there to this day. And they took advantage of, you know, guerrilla warfare is is really the I used to think it was guerrilla like the animal. It's guerrilla like warfare tactics that take advantage of what you have at your disposal. And those folks learn. They learn how to use the natural resources. They learn natural poisons. They learn natural foods. And so when those they, the Dutch hired soldiers to come all the way from Holland mm-hmm. to come into Suriname. Mm-hmm and come upriver and try to find and defeat these folks. And that was a complete failure. That was a complete failure. Also, same time as Palmares. It's interesting. These all started around the same time. Uh, around Okay, so Palmares gets started. First reports of Palmares come in around 1605. A year before were the first reports of another settlement in Colombia. It's called Palenque today, and it was a settlement of, again, folks, and there were several different um, moments in, in this community's formation. Uh, so over the course of several you know, decades, it's really kind of extends throughout the course of Colombia's history, but it's right outside the very important city of Cartagena, which was a port city, and right outside of that, there was a settlement that is called now uh, mm-hmm. Palenque de San Basilio. And those folks are there today. And as a matter of fact, they speak one of the only linguistic blends of African languages, primarily Central African languages, again, that Congo influenced because of this time period, with Spanish. So they have their own language. It's called Palenquera. Mm-hmm. They teach it to their children today. Those folks are there. And one last example I'll give you is, you know how we talk about the Pirates of the Caribbean? Well, that, that's, that was because people were, um, I told you, the European powers were fighting with each other. So if there was going to be a trade ship, their enemies were going to be trying to, to intercept it and, and raid that ship. Mm-hmm. Well... One of the things that happened in those shipping lanes, because those are the narrow shipping lanes, the Central America and whatnot, a lot of those ships wrecked. And in those shipwrecks, Africans were on a lot of those ships and they were able to take advantage of those shipwrecks and set up in a lot of little places in Central America, some of the Caribbean, you know, we have examples throughout history of those. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that happened there was there was a little community. A lot of people have not heard of this. It's called Esmeraldas on the coast of Ecuador. And there was a little African community that lived there. And one of the things that they did was they were in a Spanish territory. Well, the English 
were uh, uh, attacking Spain. So they made friends with the English. And when it came time to go <laughs> and catch those Spanish ships, the Africans would help the English. They were partners. So those pirates had African partners. That's part of the reason why they were successful. Okay. And then when the, the Spanish were trying to, to subdue the Africans, the Africans, they put on the same, you know, that Elizabethan kind of dress with those white ruffled collars and all of that. African mm -hmm. put on that same collar and said, you're speaking to the king. So it is king to king. I would like to speak to the king. And we do not believe that we need to uh, subdue. He said, but then he was smart. He said, but you know what? I will, you know, I, I understand that you want to have peace in this region. And honey, mm -hmm. he started negotiating. <laughs> Mm -hmm. He started negotiating and said, well, you know, I know you don't want to have trouble with the English. And you have these really interesting stories of how Africans were doing all of these creative negotiations, taking advantage of the opportunities that they found themselves mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And granted, not everybody had opportunity to do, you know, such spectacular things. You know, many times the kinds of things that people did mm -hmm. was very small scale. You know, just your survival, your ability to maintain a family, your ability to just live as a human being and have joy and just go and be able to just take joy in life was not what they intended for us. Mm -hmm. So our ability to free ourselves, it happened in many levels. And so not it's not that one is better or one is worse. It's freedom is all-encompassing. And what, what wonderful examples we get when we understand, when we know our history, when we understand that there are many ways to stand up for yourselves. When we go back and we talk about Palmares, we're talking about the integrity of, of Zumbi, who decided, no, we will not exist as a nation, a country that will turn over other Africans were they to make their way here free. We will not do that. So he changed the course of history standing on a point of integrity. We're talking about Africans in Suriname, Africans in, in South America, Central America, we have such a vibrant history, such, I say, exactly. a vibrant list of examples, a legacy that actually shows us how it is that when we are resourceful, and Lord knows, Black folks, I say, are some of the most resourceful, creative folks in the world because we've had to be. When we are resourceful, we actually get to create what we need, period. We get to do that. But we have to shift oftentimes our thinking, and that now we're talking historically and, and present day. Mm -hmm. We shift our thinking such that we are equipped. We can imagine what is needed and how we're going to have that. We don't have to succumb to the circumstances around us and the way that things appear not to be working in our favor. Right. These, his, these historical lessons teach us that, and they teach us what African ancestors did. We don't have to reinvent the wheel if we know, for instance, that the uh, relationship between men and women as partners, not one subjugating the other, is critical to the collective upliftment of the whole. That's just one example. And we have them throughout our history. This is just so fascinating. I so just appreciate you for being a custodian of this history and allowing us to lift the veil and, and see for ourselves just how rich, how telling, how instructive it is. I just, that's just a couple of, you know, we could do this for a long yeah. time because there's so much to know. Um, just, just a couple of more questions. Like, so those are some of the specific examples and lessons that we're, we're actually extracting from this historic information about how Black folks have achieved in the diaspora. So well, now, how, how did you come to study Brazil? I mean, mm -hmm. you talked earlier about you being interested in Brazil of when you found out that there was such a large population, the country in the world with the largest population of Africans outside of Africa. And so when you discovered that, that caught your, your attention. But now, you, you know, you're a Brooklyn girl <laughs> on the Black Neverson Life podcast. We talk about achievement and achievers. You, you have achieved quite a bit. Brooklyn girl, born in the United States, of course, going to public schools. And you somehow have 
achieved greatly in your life. So, and you're a woman, a historian, you know, men dominate that particular discipline. So how did you come to achieve your, your career as a scholar, as a, as a multilingual scholar on top of that? <laughs> wow. Um, hmm. Well, obviously that's a big question. I will credit my mother with never allowing me to ever believe that anything about me would prevent me from doing what I wanted. Mm. Um, that that's a mindset thing. Yeah, uh, and that yes. that's critical because yes. when you bring these children into the school system, they tear down um black folks and especially black children's possibilities for themselves. So I had good, strong family members. I remembered uh, my family is not Spanish speaking or anything, and certainly not Portuguese speaking. But I had an aunt who worked as a travel agent, and she traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, one time she says, um, she's going to teach me how to say, como esta usted, right? And I said, oh, okay. So I learned how to say, como esta usted? And I heard the answer was like, uh, estoy bien, right? How are you? I'm well. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, you speak Spanish. And from that point on, you couldn't tell me I did not speak Spanish. And so when I went into school and they gave us, you know, Spanish 101, I just went in with the mindset, well, I can speak Spanish. About how old were you at this time? Well, with the Spanish thing, it was 12. But I mean, much earlier than that, even before going to school, I remember when I was a child, I, I think this was I was four or five. And they used to have a beauty pageant called Little Miss America. And I, I said I wanted to be Little Miss America because you had good prizes. You got the whole line of Barbie and the whole line of Susie Homemaker toys. I wanted everything. And my mother never told me, well, listen, little black child in the 1960s who is a little chubby black dark-skinned girl with nappy hair, we are not thinking of you as Little Miss America. But what she told me why I couldn't compete was because she said, but you know, darling, I think one of the competition uh, events was to sit still for a minute. And she said, I just don't think you can sit still for a minute. Why don't we practice? And I tried and I couldn't do it. I said, mommy, I guess I can't be Miss America because I just can't sit still. But I never thought about it as that I couldn't. Wow. That you couldn't. So so I just want to underscore, you've said two just extraordinarily important things here in terms of what shaped your mindset and had you to determine yourself to be to be whoever you chose to be, that you were not living within limits. Now, your mother shaped your mindset that said you can be whatever whatever you choose. And then you have an aunt, a traveler, who said you can speak Spanish. Oh, yes, you can. And then faced with a circumstance that actually could have been this whole I want to be Miss a little Miss America faced with that um that that desire your mother mitigated the impact that could have occurred if someone told you at this very young age that you're not enough you're not good enough you don't look a particular way mother had wisdom enough to know that there are many ways to navigate other people's toxic barriers such that they do not become toxic for the navigator. Just extraordinary. And I want our listeners to hear that because when we are faced with circumstances, anyone, uh, this, this, would, this would be true for, but particularly for Black folks, we don't always have to go into the toil and the, we don't have to come up damaged and out of all circumstances, particularly when you have the insight, the wisdom, and the guidance of adults who care, who know, and who will take the time to covet the development of the mind and the mindset. Just great insights. And so mm-hmm. now, yeah. what, given what you know, given who you are, you've studied African diaspora and history uh, most of your adult life, you've certainly been been deep in the archives, down low in the the, the reservoirs. The information <laughs> got out. But, so now, <laughs> what impact does your study have in developing 
self-worth, black self-worth. Is there a connection mm. here to understand the history? Well, oh my goodness. Uh, yes, yes, yes. And remember, I also teach in Africana studies. So, it, I mean, it's really kind of a full circle. And one of the academy, you're still teaching yes. at Rutgers University today. Okay, great. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think maybe we could say it this way when you can see who we are in history, you can see yourself through a different set of eyes not through the eyes of the people who are trying to, I, I just keep coming back to the word consume you because it's almost like they just want to just use black people, black bodies. There's a certain way in which that mindset sees a black person, a black individual. And oftentimes it, it, it's, it's a negative and it's so ingrained in our society that if we can shift the way we see ourselves and each other, that is already like oh, an act of liberation. So, so let, let's just take the story we just told. I mean, if all you are told is black people came here, they were in, enslaved, they were subdued, and then they got freed and then they didn't do anything. Oh, don't forget, we were happy. We were happy to be subdued. <laughs> right, right. So if that's the only image you have of yourself, that is very different. When you go looking back at your your ancestors and your, your, your extended family of ancestors who were doing all kinds of things to make a way out of no way in this hostile environment, and not only do mm. that, I mean, they did not just survive. They just dug deep. I mean, this whole thing you mentioned about resourcefulness, mm. that's not just an isolated thing. It is embedded in our cultural history. That is critical to our survival. And so we know how to get through. And we also, that creativity, that inventiveness is to, to how to get over through these tough times. Yes. And then to know that we also are not just the workers. We are not just, you know, the employees or the service people or whatnot. We are individuals who, like every other human being on God's green earth, has a right to a full life and a joyful life. And the degree to which we claim our own joy, it also says, no, I am not just that cog in the machinery that you want me to be. I so, am God's child too. It, you know, you sound like you just in love with yourself. That's <laughs> the observation, just like you love. It. So it's uh, it sounds to me that your understanding of of your history of African diaspora and history has allowed you to really see, know, and value who you are, who Black people are, based on evidence, not you know nursery rhymes, but because you know you have seen primary doc. Yeah, I mean, you live in the evidence of it. It just sounds like well, and I'll tell you something. It has given me a whole new set of superheroes. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. I hear that. All these amazing people that are like, wow. You know, I'm just like, yeah. And, you know? And they look like you, huh? Yes, they do. So what, what do you love about being Black? I'm just going to just, that's what jumps out. You just loving you. What you love about being black, and it could very well be the things that you've just begun to delineate: the creative creativity, the stick-to-itiveness, the tenacity. You know, well, I mean, it's all of those things. But there is, I mean, and I know this sounds tough because we are so often facing tough times. We have gone through so much crisis as a people, and then those crises come home to us personally in so many ways, right? Um, we all have had the tragedies that collectively make up the tragedy of Black people. I am sure everybody knows a relative who has died prematurely, you know, whether that is violence or whether it is the, the health conditions we live in all of those things, so right? So I'm not being Pollyannish and not acknowledging all of those things. Right. Mm -hmm. But yet as a people, we just have, I think because it has been so denied for us, we just seem to find a way 
to find a way to find the fun and the joy. I mean, you think about like the black comedians, they talk about some deep stuff. That's right. But they do it in a way that allows us to laugh. Or sometimes we might just go to a party, a good party on a, you know, just a good old house party. And the music is good. And you just sweat and just get all that stress out. That You know, we shouldn't pay hundreds of dollars to people to teach yoga and mindfulness class. But I know sometimes whatever, if I came out of a good party and I just sweated it out and everything, I was just as relieved. You were pulling away, <laughs> got your mind out. back, yeah. Exactly. And then got yeah. a workout in the, in yeah. the, in the, in the, in the, in the yeah. process. So that's what I was saying. You know, we got to honor the, the, the genius that yeah. we have. And, you know, one of the things that you do that I think is so, so wonderful is a monthly newsletter that just is a, a reaffirmation of all of that genius. And again, it is not something that is going to be in the news that usually takes one horrible story oh, yeah. and beats it into the ground until the next one comes Beat along. Beat it down, pass it around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And meanwhile, there is so much going on. I mean, such a genius. And, and, you know, I mean, think about all of the things that we have created in the worst of yes. times, in the worst of times. And so that is why when we are facing crises today, you know, like the financial downturn and we're facing this now, we're facing a COVID pandemic and we're facing all these things that are really hurting Black folks. I am convinced that we are going to find a way through. But we also, you know, we also have traditions of struggle and we also have traditions of social justice. So it's not on us because we did not create these hardships. But we also are creative in the way we take it to the larger society. And, you know, the new forms of struggle will probably not look like the marches and things that we did and sit-ins and we did decades ago. Say that that is why we have taken advantage of things like Twitter, made, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, take advantage of something like, you know, Colin Kaepernick, he's at a, a, a football game. He's going to take advantage of that to call attention to police brutality. You know, all these things that people are just bringing that same creativity to help transform this society because the society continues to aim to destroy and consume Black life, poor life, immigrant life, all the people who are not in that top 1%. You know, we got to remember the indigenous people to all of us. We're in this together. The wonderful thing about our history is that when we know it, when we know the kinds of things that have made a difference in our lives, when we know the tactics, the strategies, the actual processes that we have employed, we get to study them and determine, hmm, maybe this play from that year would apply to this very similar circumstance now. When we don't have that historical knowledge, then we often find ourselves just reinventing, what should we do, what should we do? There are no challenges, I say, that we are facing today that we haven't faced before. Mm -hmm. And so when we have that playbook, that history, it really does empower us in in that way to pull from the manual of what Mm -hmm. works. And that's why I will also say if we as a nation are truly committed to social justice, then we will understand that that record of knowing how to confront social injustice Mm -hmm. is embedded in Black history. And so Black history is not only for Black people, although it has a special (laughs) meaning for us, but every single person living in this country or anybody who is committed to social justice anywhere in the world would do well to study the Black experience because we are the ones who have had to deal with the brunt of it and confront it. So we are a playbook of what possibilities are there. Strategies that can work, absolutely. So now as we wind down, as we wind down, just you know, breathing in this wonderful treasure chest of history that you have opened up for us, it's just so illuminating. It is affirming in that we understand better in our day-to-day lives, individually and collectively, there are ways in which we can actually look at our lives and construct the best 
from our lives, when we're mindful, when we're intentional, and when we're learning the information and the skills that are required to craft the life that we really, really want. And that's the point of the Black Magnificent Life podcast and the Black Magnificent Life Educational Complex. We are able and we have evidence that we hope will inspire people today. Today, your life can be what you envision and you can envision more courageously than ever when you know that this is not the first time you and folks that look like you have had to achieve and climb in the way that life might be requiring you to climb in this moment. We can live greatly. And so I want to ask you as a final question, this notion of Blacknificent life, what, what is that for you, Dr. Kim Butler? Blacknificent life, what does that mean for you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you ask big questions. <laughs> um, well, you know, Blacknificent life, I think that, you know, you have really defined it well in um, your podcast, your newsletter. It is truly seeing ourselves. I'll just answer personally, you know, it's just to see reflected in me all the greatness that is embedded in our history, but then also being able to share that with others. I mean, we have a lot of healing work to do. And so, you know, I teach, but it's not only in teaching, you know, that we have an opportunity to share that same information to others. So, you know, there's a lot of folks that are interested in Black history and that might just go on websites. And I mean, everything is out there. There's so much now available where you could just get to it right from any internet site, right? The ability for us to just share that with young people, with our friends and our colleagues and whatnot. The ability to just carry oneself in the world, mm -hmm. just confident in, you know, the beauty that God created in us. You know, those kinds of things to me, that is really, for me, the way I would answer that question. Because blackness, my blackness is a celebration. My blackness is just a divinity, you know? And I live in a country where that's supposed to be a pathology, where it's supposed to be a problem. And I don't have to live like that. And I can share as much as I can with others so that they can start opening mm. their eyes. Mm. Um, you know, I'll just end with one little, little thing that I learned. I was um, working at the Folklife Festival in D.C., I was an intern and they had these hair braiders coming over with the Senegalese delegation. And they were talking about, oh, they had all these traditions about they had a lineage of braiders and whatnot. And I felt kind of small. I was with some other Black Americans and we were like, well, we don't have any of that. We kind of felt like, wow, we lost our tradition. And there was... Um, Bernice Johnson Reagan, who is a historian, and she is the founder of the acapella group Sweet Honey in the Rock. She was a freedom singer uh -huh. with SNCC. And she pulled us aside and she said, oh, no, we have traditions, too. She said, would you wear your hair as a young lady? Would you hear, wear your hair with two pigtails in the back and one little in the front? We laughed. We said, no, that's a child. She says, yes, that's right, because we have the same principle mm -hmm. of their styles for children, their styles for adults, their style for grandmother, and yes. styles for grandmother. Mm -hmm. And then it was just a shift in my ability to see, open my eyes to what we already Absolutely. have. It's just that little shift in perception. And that makes a difference in how you live your life as a Black person in this world. Listen, it is just so wonderful to have your expertise, your guidance, and your insight around living a Blacknificent life through the lens of a historian, a person who has just studied and gained understanding about the conditions of Black people around the world over time. Can you please tell folks who would be interested in communicating with you, connecting with you, perhaps as a keynoter, 
you may have folks who are interested in research or how do people get in touch with you? What's the best way of connecting with you? Well, the easiest way to reach me is through um, Rutgers University. So if you just go to rutgers.edu, that's uh, R-U-T-G-E-R-S dot E-D-U, they have a little search box that pops up, you know, to search for people. You just put in there Kim Butler and it'll take you directly to me. Folks can Google you. You have great web presence. So thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing not simply your expertise, as valuable as that is, but yourself. Thank you for showing up as a sister scholar who has dedicated her life to understanding her people, Black people throughout the diaspora, and who gets excited about the opportunities to share this, to bring the history, the scholarly, the uh, archival work, the primary documents, to interpret that for the community so that we collectively have a greater understanding of just how great we really, really are. Thank you for joining us. Oh, well, thank you so much, Sister Mongaza, for this invitation. It was a pleasure, and I just continue to wish you success in sharing your insights and all that you're bringing through this platform. And I want to just, I want our audience to know, like, if you really enjoyed this podcast and you want to hear more from Dr. Butler, let us know. We want you to be inspired in ways that really keep you excited and ready to activate your own Blacknificent life. I want to invite you back now to just have a conversation with us about another area of diasporan history, and that is the Black consciousness movement among Afro-Brazilians. There is just such great, great information that you can provide. And I'm going to look forward to having another conversation with you at some time. Very new. So listen, can I tell you just, just how grateful I am that you listened to this podcast? And I really hope that you heard something that you really were informed and inspired by this conversation to live just your greatest life. I am so happy to have this time with you. I am Sister Dr. Mwangaza, Michael Bondale, saying thank you for visioning more for yourself and taking the actions required to craft that magnificent life, indeed, your Blacknificent life. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Blacknificent Life podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our email list at www.blacknificentlife.com. And whatever you do, be sure to consciously, consistently, and courageously craft your own Blacknificent life. Until next time.